The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Say to the Israelites, Of all the animals that live on land, these are the ones you may eat. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The hyrax, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud, does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean for you. And the pig, though it has a divided hoof, does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. Do not defile yourself by any of these creatures. Do not make yourself unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore be holy because I am holy. Matthew 15, 1 to 11. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of your God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your mother and your father, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their mother or father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people will honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Thank you, Laura. Hello, Elevation family. My name is Kristen. It's so wonderful to worship with you this morning. Um, if I have, I'm a part of the teaching team here at Elevation, and if I haven't yet met you, um, I'm married to Dwayne. We have two children, Noel and Nathan. And I am also a PhD student studying English up on the hill over there at University of Waterloo. And part of what we do as English PhDs is we tackle complex texts and we like break them open and we put them in context and we study them and we really try to mine them for their riches. So um, it is a joy today to put on my nerd hat with you all and to open up this complex and difficult text of Leviticus because I believe it holds some valuable riches for us today. So we're looking specifically at Leviticus 11, the clean and unclean food chapter. In this chapter, which we only read a small portion of, God tells Moses and Aaron, okay, here's a list of animals that you can eat and a list of animals you can't eat. But then he goes on to put this very moral qualifier on the animals, clean and unclean. This is some charged language to associate with food. None of us wants to put unclean food in our bodies, and certainly none of us wants to eat food that's going to morally corrupt us. <clears throat> I can't help but think of the show Man vs. Wild with Bear Grylls. Are some of you familiar with this? He is sort of famous for eating disgusting things. Um, some of the most disgusting things Bear has eaten, larva, raw animal heart, and the grossest of all gross, he has drank water uh, that he has squeezed from camel poop. Disgusting. Um, I once, I know, 
I once went out to breakfast with a close friend from graduate school. She had been raised a modern Orthodox Judaism, which is very conservative. And you should have seen the look on her face when I ordered bacon with my breakfast. Uh, she looked at me as if I was drinking camel poop water. Because, of course, pig is on the unclean list, and she, being raised in Judaism, was very attuned to Leviticus 11. So on the list of clean animals, we have cows, quail, deer, sheep, and the like. All sounds very delicious. Uh, animals that didn't make the list were pigs, lobster, shrimp, rabbits, cats, dogs, bats, spiders, camels, and many more. And some of this we're totally okay with, right? Personally, I do not want to eat bats, dogs, cats, camels, or spiders. That is no problem. But there are others on the list that confound us. Pigs? Really? Shrimp? Why? And we're left asking, what was going on here? What was God trying to do? Because these designations seem so arbitrary. Many of us had bacon for breakfast this morning, and now we're starting to sweat. So, Let's look at what God was doing here. Well, over the years, theologians and biblical scholars have come up with some theories about what might have been going on when God made this distinction between the animals as clean and unclean. Some think perhaps that given the cultural context, um, God was really trying to help protect the Jews. Given their early cooking technologies, they may not have been able to cook out the diseases that lived in some of these animals. So God's rules were really helping to keep them healthy and safe. Other theories touch on the allegorical nature of dividing the animals. Some biblical scholars argue that in creating the distinctions between clean and unclean, God was symbolically pointing towards the distinctions between life and death, Jew and Gentile, so that when Jesus appears in the New Testament, he then reconciles this all to himself, death and life, Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean. So these are some beautiful and fascinating interpretations that have merit. But regardless of the on-the-ground applications of these rules for the Jews, the scholars across the board understand an overarching reason for why God was making these rules for the Israelites. And not just about food. All of Leviticus, as we've been studying this month, is a whole series of rules that God was setting up for the Israelites. So the answer to why God was making all these seemingly arbitrary rules comes to us at the end of chapter 11 in verses 44 and 45. God says to Moses and Aaron, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves about on the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy, because I am holy. What we discover is God was trying to help the Israelites create an identity for themselves as his people. You see, this was something new that was going on in history. In a world where the nations had multiple gods and these gods were distant and obtuse and manipulative, God was creating a new thing. Israel would be his people and he would be their one God. He would guide them, protect them, dwell among them. And this was unlike any other relationship other nations had with their gods. So God is trying to create some boundaries here. He was trying to help the Israelites build a new identity as God's people something that made them different, distinct, and separate from the rest of the world. And he did, did this by putting rules into place. 
So we're looking at the food chapter, but the rest of Leviticus is full of rules about aspects of the Israelites' life that God was ordering for them to help them create this identity. In the Christian tradition, we call this the Old Covenant, which is a very fancy-sounding word for a promise. God was making a promise to Israel that he would be their God, he would be their God, and they would be his people. So how do you create a new identity? Well, God chose to do this in part through food. Now, if we have a hard time understanding how food or what we eat could possibly connect to a sense of identity, we only need to look at some of our food rules and diets that we have today. Some of us here are vegetarians, some of us are vegans, some are on the clean eating or the whole foods diet, others are unapologetic carnivores who love red meat. Each of these food choices has come about because of certain preferences but if we look deeper, we can see how they're also an expression of our values. Choosing to be a vegetarian or a vegan certainly has health reasons, but it can also be about sustainability and responsibly stewarding our food resources. Those who are carnivores may love hunting and taking that time each year to get out into nature, to reconnect with creation and their hunting buddies and providing resourcefully for their families is a meaningful part of their identity. Food has always been intricately tied to our principles, our values, and ultimately, our identities. But you see, God wasn't just calling his people to be separate from. That was just part of the equation, half the journey. The rules weren't just about asking them to eat and live differently from the surrounding nations. God was also calling his people to be dedicated to something or someone. In his book on Leviticus, theologian Ephraim Radner explains what God was trying to do when he called his people to be holy. He says that God was calling the Israelites to not just be separate from the world, but to be dedicated to God. He writes, holiness is a calling to be with God, where God is and where God goes. So holiness is a proximity to God, a closeness with God. But there was a problem, because no amount of rules would ever be enough to get us close to God. We have an uncanny ability as humans to take these rules that are meant for life and meant to create identity and turn them and twist them into legalism, to squeeze the life and the spirit out of them and manipulate them to serve our own interests. Those of us from more conservative religious backgrounds have seen this legalism firsthand. I grew up in the Wesleyan movement, which is a beautiful tradition that I hold very dear, but my grandparents and par parents grew up with some funny rules, like no makeup, no jewelry, no drinking, no smoking, no going to the movie theater, and certainly no dancing. I grew up with some of these rules, although not all of them, and my parents did a wonderful job explaining to me that we had these rules because we were reminding ourselves that we were set apart. We were different from the rest of the world. We didn't go to clubs, we didn't drink, we didn't smoke, because we lived our lives with a different set of values, with our eyes on eternal things. Later, I attended a Wesleyan University where we had to uh, sign a lifestyle commitment that we wouldn't dance, watch rated R movies, drink, smoke, and certainly no drugs of any kind. And I could get on board with most of these lifestyle rules, but I was a film major, so I especially cha chafed under the no-rated R movies because I couldn't understand how was I supposed to grasp uh, the scope of my field by only watching PG films. 
I also didn't like the no dancing rule. I wasn't planning on going to any clubs, although I like to keep my options open. Uh, but I'd also been in show choir and theater in high school, and I can do some impressive jazz hands. So I tried to get away without signing the lifestyle commitment, and sure enough, about a week into the term, I got called back into the dean of students' office. He simply pushed the paper across the desk to me and said, I think you forgot to sign this. It's the same battle with rules and the ways they so easily turn into legalism that we see happening in the New Testament and our second scripture reading today in Matthew. So generations after the old covenant has been established, the Jews have, become, have been living by these rules and become very comfortable with them. Jesus faces off with the Pharisees who were professional rule keepers, and they were trying to trip Jesus up with these rules. They say, Jesus, you're not making your disciples wash their hands before they eat. That's unclean. You're breaking the sacred law. But Jesus is having none of it, and he says, I'm breaking the rules? And what about you? You who have been commanded to take care of your aging mothers and fathers, but who twist the rules to your own gain. You see, the Pharisees were professional rule keepers, but they were masterful rule twisters. And there were two laws at play here. The first one was to take care of your aging parents financially. The second one, it was what was called the law of Corbin or offering, which means that you will dedicate your earnings to the temple and you'll give it as a gift to God. The Pharisees had twisted the rules in such a way that a person could get out of financially taking care of their parents by invoking the law of Corbin, which meant they could say, sorry, mom and dad, I would like to take care of you, but my money has to go to the temple. In reality, even then, the money wasn't being used for religious things. So the Pharisees were missing the point. The spirit of the law was that the Israelites would be different from other nations and that they wouldn't abandon their elderly they would care for the aging and treat them well. The spirit of Corbin was that the Israelites would use their offering as a gift to God. But in both of these instances, the Pharisees had twisted the law to serve their own financial purposes. Jesus says to the Pharisees, I'm breaking the law? You hypocrites. You say with your lips that you love God, but your hearts are far away from him. And then Jesus does something radical. He takes the law and he transforms it into something deeper, something that no longer dictates who we are from the outside in, but something that transforms us from the inside out. He turns to the crowd of listeners and he says, listen and understand. What goes into your mouths does not make you unclean, but what comes out of your mouth, that is what makes you unclean. Suddenly, in Jesus' hands, the laws are no longer about what we do or don't do. They are about our hearts. Jesus is taking the law deeper. He's fulfilling it and embodying it in a way that transforms us internally. You see, the law of Leviticus was the Old Testament. It was the old promise, the old covenant. But with Jesus, there is a new covenant, a new promise that God is making with us today. Jesus says of himself, I have not come to abolish the laws, but to fulfill them. What does this mean? That he's going to keep every law perfectly? Well, clearly not, since he didn't make the disciples wash their hands before they ate. What he means by fulfilling the law is that he is able to do fully what the law can only do partially. Let me say that again. Jesus is able to do fully 
what the law can only do partially. Jesus is able to fully draw us closer to God. He is able to truly help us be holy from the inside out, to be dedicated to God completely. Through Jesus, we can be with God, where God is, and where God goes. Jesus is our proximity to God in time and beyond time. So if we're having a hard time understanding this word holiness and what it means to be close to God, let me spell it for you a little bit differently. Think of it this way. Holiness as holiness, W-H-O-L-L-Y. A wholeheartedness, an undivided heart, a heart dedicated to God through the person of Jesus. I love how King David sings it in Psalms 86:11. Give me an undivided heart so that I might fear your name. Let's get real for a moment. What divides our heart today in the here and the now? There have been many moments when I've faced my own divided heart, and I've spoken to you before about some of these, and I've seen it with alarming clarity. I remember one of those moments came about 10 years ago when we were living in Los Angeles and attending a Nazarene church. There was a pastor who was preaching a powerful sermon on holiness, and he quoted a prayer of covenant or promise from John Wesley, and the prayer goes like this. I'm no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious God, and glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. Amen. And I remember as I sat in the pews listening to this prayer, I bulked because I knew that I couldn't pray it. Let me be full, let me be empty. No, I wanted to be full. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. No, I want all things. I do not want to be uncomfortable. I do not want to hurt. I don't want to be in pain, and I don't want to do without. I fidgeted in my seat because I had to admit in that moment that what I wanted more than anything, even if I was honest more than following Jesus, was my own comfort and security. Is there anything sinful with wanting to be comfort, comfortable? Absolutely not. Don't misunderstand me. God has designed us to love, beauty, pleasure, comfort, joy. That is his gift in creating us in his image, and all these things can point us back to him. But if we begin to place our trust in comfort, security, and our own ability, then those things that were gifts can become things that divide our hearts. The things that divide our hearts don't necessarily lead to sinful actions. They just live deep in the root of us, secretly, quietly controlling us, holding us captive, determining our choices, our attitudes, our interpretations of our experiences. In Philippians 2, 3, Paul puts his finger on some of the things that quietly divide our hearts. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Why? Well, because being selfish can divide our hearts. Because worrying about our reputation more than our identity in Jesus, that can divide our hearts. Because our fragile pride that leads us to put others down so that we can feel better, that can divide our hearts. Because looking out for our own security, 
financial or otherwise, that can divide our hearts. Looking out for our comfort rather than trusting that comfort to Jesus, that can divide our hearts. You know, until we ask Jesus to give us an undivided heart, there will always be a part of us that is working for, reaching for, leaning toward our own self-interest and gain. It's just the way it is. It makes me think of um, this like little root that's like hanging on so tight and so deep and it's so clever, it can just evade us. Um, it reminds me of those dandelion roots, my nemesis. Like every spring, I spend an inordinate amount of time hunched over the yard like with the popper thing, popping out dandelions. And it's an act of futility, but it is so addictive because it's so satisfying to like feel that pop of the root come out. Um, once you pop, you can't stop, but I digress. Um, it's like that in that you can cut off the dandelion head, you can try to pull it out, but if you don't get the root out, those things will come back and they will spread. <clears throat> it can be terrifying to surrender our divided hearts because, let's be honest, to let go of our own interests, our own pride, our own selfishness, our reputations, our security, our comfort, our need for control, that is to crawl up on the cross with Jesus. To surrender our divided hearts means a part of us dies. Um, that part of us that needs and wants to be in control. But in God's upside-down economy, dying to ourselves doesn't ultimately mean death. It means life. Jesus said it best, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. There is a power and a freedom that defies gravity when we have an undivided heart. And in my experience with this, um, there's just this deep sense of peace and gladness that sweeps over your heart when you let go. It's hard at first. There's a lot of tears, and there's grief. There's a sense of grief um, over letting that part of you die. And yet there's such a sense of relief that comes after that, a wholeness. Peter tells us that we have a new identity, a power that not only transforms us but changes the world. He says, for you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. And here we go back to Leviticus. He says, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are overflowing in mercy. You are wrapped up and bound up in God's mercy. Melissa and the band are going to come up and sing for us. And as they sing this song, I invite you to take this time to go inward and look at your heart. Are there areas you are afraid of losing control? Are you willing to surrender that to Jesus? Are you willing to open your hands and let your heart be put back together to be made whole? If so, pray this prayer with me as we sing. Lord, give me an undivided heart. If you need and want to embody this prayer, feel free to hold your hands open on your lap as you pray, or there are benches underneath the pews. You can pull them down and kneel as you pray. But let's pray as Melissa sings. <clears throat> 